what would you think if your Mary Kay salesman, a consultant, never wore makeup? Deal breaker? Uh, what if your dentist had bad oral hygiene? Years ago, I, I went to my rotund physician near Fit, uh, Pittsburgh, and, and he encouraged me to be better hydrated and told me that I didn't need to drink water. I could keep a can of Pepsi around and drink it throughout the day like he did. Something seems bad about that medical advice. Christina has noticed a, um, a landscaping truck parked in a driveway of a certain house, and the owner presumably works uh, for the landscaping company, and the house, it has the worst landscaping on the street. Something seems not quite right with that, right? We expect a certain level of consistency. What would it communicate if Christians were miserable and gloomy people? What, what if that's how we came across to others? Since Christ has delivered us from all our sins and misery and reconciled us to God, we have something legitimate to celebrate, and our lives should be typified by gratitude and rejoicing, not misery and gloom. And this is not to say Christians never struggle with anxiety or depression or despair. Read the Psalms. I think that struggle is lifelong. But to have a life characterized or epitomized by gloom simply doesn't harmonize with the grace that we have in Christ. A Christian's life is one of thankful celebration of Christ, thankful obedience to Christ, and thankful anticipation of Christ's return. God tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoicing and thanksgiving are God's will for us, brothers and sisters. And, and God also tells us that the Christian is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrow and celebration can be simultaneous. Dear saints, we should mourn our sin and the evil inside of us and in the world. Sorrow over sin and guilt should lead us to repentance. But at the same time, we mourn our sin and sorrowfully repent with hope and rejoicing, knowing that we have the forgiveness of sins in Christ. The Apostle Paul said we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The Christian life is one of thankful celebration of Christ, thankful obedience to Christ, and thankful anticipation of of Christ's glorious return. That's my point. I struggled this week to understand verses 14 through 17, particularly verses 16 and 17. I, I, I wasn't getting it, but I think I'm beginning to get it, and hopefully I can help you to begin to get it. And I'd like to start here. Number one, religious discipline can be self-righteous and empty of the joy of knowing Christ. 
doing religious activities can sometimes be more about self-esteem and status than it is about knowing and loving Christ. True piety is filled with the joy of knowing and serving and honoring Christ. And sometimes we forget. It's easy to be religiously disciplined and busy without actually thinking much about communing with Christ. Like sometimes happens in marriage, the friendship and love cool, and the relationship becomes more business-like. We begin to think God owes us something because we've done so much for Him, and this kind of thinking greatly undermines our thankfulness and our joy in Christ. So religious discipline can be completely void of the joy of knowing Christ. Last week in verses 9 through 13, Jesus gave true friendship to sinners. He reclined at table, at dinner, with the disreputable of society in order to truly love them. And you can imagine that those who received the friendship and love of Jesus were truly grateful and celebrated him. Consider how people in the scriptures, when you read about him healing, consider how they responded to his healing. Well, they celebrated. It was joy. It was glorifying God. When the reason for celebrating is missed, one doesn't celebrate, one criticizes. Verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, first, the law required fasting one day per year. One day a year, on the Day of Atonement, Jews were to fast. Outside of that one day, fasting was voluntary. But there were other occasions to fast, like in Scripture that we see, like in the book of Esther, uh, when she was trying to save the Jewish people, or David fasting for his sick son in 2 Samuel 12. Those were voluntary fasts. John's disciples and the Pharisees voluntary fa voluntarily fasted, and criticized Jesus' disciples for not fasting. In fact, and this is interesting, the Pharisees fasted twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. Fasting is a discipline of going without food for a religious purpose for a period of time. And rightly done is an act of faith, dependence, worship. Fasting was a, a somber occasion. Listen to these verses. Psalm 35, verse 13. But I... When they were sick, I wore sackcloth, I afflicted myself with fasting, I prayed with head bowed on my chest. That's somber. Uh, Psalm 69 verse 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. That's somber. Daniel 9 verses 3 through 5, then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You get the idea. Fasting was solemn, penitent, reverent, and done in communion with God. Fasting was meant to focus the affections on God, but the Pharisees 
made fasting into merit. Not humility, not penitence, not pleading for mercy and grace, not drawing close to God to seek his face, but fasting to look righteous and to merit God's favor. Fasting fueled their self-righteousness. C.B. Bass noted this, in general, in the Old Testament, fasting was abused. Instead of a sincere act of self-renunciation and submission to God, fasting became externalized as an empty ritual in which a pretense of piety was presented as a public image. End of quote. A pretense of piety was presented as a public image. Fasting can be self-righteous and empty, completely empty of the joy of knowing and communing with God. C.B. Bass added, this developed into a rabbinic tradition in which fasting was viewed as meritorious and therefore became the primary act of demonstrating piety. It was, however, a false piety consisting mostly in the externals of fastidious observance of fast days, both public and private, end of quote. A friend of mine, uh, Steve Estes, who's the pastor of Brick Lane Community Church in Elverson, gave a similar thought in his sermon on these verses. Steve said this, the Pharisees fasted for forgiveness. It was the teaching of the rabbis that fasting was the negative part of gaining forgiveness and that prayers and giving money to the poor was the positive side. Taken together, they earned merit and favor with God. End of quote. The Pharisees fasted to earn merit and favor with God. And, and there Jesus' disciples were feasting. Not fasting, feasting. Why? To celebrate the presence of God. Now, John the Baptist's disciples were, I think, concerned for a different reason than the Pharisees were. I don't think they fasted to merit forgiveness and God's favor. Steve Estes suggests that they followed John the Baptist who preached a strong message of repentance of sin and forgiveness, and John lived a disciplined and Spartan lifestyle. Why wouldn't his disciples emulate him? They too strove for a discipline and ascetic lifestyle. And I think Steve is right. I think John's disciples were slightly different than the Pharisees, but they were similar in at least three ways. One, they were both fasting. Two, they were both concerned about Jesus' disciples not fasting. And three, they were both missing the reason for the celebration. They did not comprehend that the great bridegroom had come and it was time to celebrate his presence and his power and his ministry and his love. Craig Blomberg said, preparation for the Messiah's coming required repentance and a certain austerity, but now the time for joy has arrived. Neither the Pharisees nor John's disciples were wrong in fasting as a prelude to the reception of spiritual blessings, but now those blessings were present, are present. Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom stimulates celebration and rejoicing as at wedding festivities. The kingdom had come to them. It was time to celebrate the inauguration of the kingdom with the king. The great bridegroom had come bringing his blessings, so, hey, let's feast with him. Brothers and sisters, 
self-righteous religious discipline can blind us to the beauty, goodness, and joy of the presence of the bridegroom. Might we participate in corporate worship without celebrating Christ? Might we receive the Lord's Supper from the hand of the minister and miss communing with Christ? Might we teach our children Christian morals without teaching them friendship with Christ? The disciplines, uh, disciples rather, of John and the Pharisees certainly had religious discipline, but they did not celebrate Christ. Do you understand why the Christian life is typified by gratitude and gladness? Number two, the essence of the Christian life is thankful celebration of friendship with Christ. In order to answer the question, Jesus used a wedding metaphor, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Well, what kind of occasion is a wedding? Well, it's a joyful celebration. I'm officiating a wedding uh, this coming Saturday, and it will be a joyful occasion, a reason to feast and celebrate the covenant love of this wonderful couple that we've gotten to know. But if Christina and I head to the reception on Saturday, and everyone looks dismal, with sunken faces, and they're not eating anything, well, we'll know something is definitely wrong. What is up with this, right? You don't fast at weddings, you feast at weddings. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting during the wedding in the presence of the bridegroom. Fasting. They were missing it. Jesus called them out on it. His disciples were right to feast. How could they not feast in the presence of the bridegroom? And Jesus' wedding metaphor has big-time implications here. First, the term wedding guests in the Greek is more literally sons of the bride chamber. Sons of the bride chamber. This was a Jewish expression for friends of the bridegroom or attendants of the bridegroom. These were the closest friends of the groom. Leon Morris said, quote, these people are necessarily preoccupied with the marriage. That is why they are there, and such practices uh, as mourning are far from their minds, end of quote. When you love the groom, you celebrate with the groom. You participate in his joy. Jesus' disciples were the guests, the attendants, the celebrators now, if Jesus' disciples were the wedding guests, what does that imply about Jesus? Jesus was saying that he is the bridegroom. He is the one that they're celebrating. They were feasting because he had come to them. He had brought his kingdom to them. This is something that you can't miss. In the Old Testament, folks, Who's the bridegroom? God says in Isaiah 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
Hosea 2, 19 and 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Jeremiah 2, 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Who's the bridegroom? God's the bridegroom. The church is his beloved bride. Jesus was saying, why would they fast? They are feasting and celebrating me. Emmanuel, for I have come for them and am now with them. It was time to celebrate because salvation had come. Now, what has Matthew been doing all along in his gospel? Showing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, is Emmanuel, is God in human flesh, who commands diseases and demons and natural disasters. Matthew's theme is the divinity of Jesus the Christ and the blessings of the kingdom which he brings to his beloved people. His bride. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to virgins awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom arrives, they go with him into the marriage feast. And it was so helpful for Jesus to say this to John's disciples. You may remember that in John 3, some of John's disciples were discussing purification with a certain Jew. They went to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, look, he, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And then after reminding them that he was not the Christ, John told his disciples this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John had already taught his disciples that he was simply the friend of the bridegroom rejoicing at the bridegroom's voice and that Jesus was the bridegroom. John celebrated the coming of Christ. John's disciples weren't putting it all together. They were missing something. But maybe when Jesus said this to John's disciples, maybe at least for some of them, maybe they finally got it. Jesus, you are the bridegroom that John was talking about. We must celebrate. The bridegroom has come to rejoice or to rescue and redeem his, his bride. Let us not mourn. Let us not fast in the presence of the divine bridegroom, but let us feast. Let us celebrate him. Salvation has come to us today. Now, we must be clear that Jesus didn't invalidate all fasting. Uh, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He taught about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. So we know it was relevant. Jesus said his disciples would fast again. So fa he's not abrogating fasting. In verse 15, Jesus gives the first veiled reference to his crucifixion. He mentioned that the bridegroom would be taken away from the wedding guests and then they would fast. And I think taken away includes the crucifixion and the ascension. 
Christians fasted after the ascension. We see that in the New Testament. Jesus didn't abolish fasting, but drew attention in this moment to his identity and glory uh, by not fasting voluntarily, instead feasting and celebrating. I think Jesus' statement here has eschatological significance and times significance because during the first coming of Christ, it was time to celebrate. The Lord had come, but the bridegroom is taken away. From the time of his ascension to the time of his return, fasting is appropriate. Mourning sin and evil and pleading with God for mercy and grace and denying ourselves so that we can better focus on God are all appropriate though now they're done in gratitude in light of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ. But when Christ the bridegroom returns for us, his beloved bride, to be with her and love her forever, fasting will once again be replaced by feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, here in Matthew, Christ commenced his kingdom, began his kingdom in the hearts and lives of his people. What a day of rejoicing it was as they tasted the glory of the king and his kingdom. But at his second coming, Christ will consummate his kingdom and bring the eternal age of rejoicing when fasting is no more. I think verse 15 gives us the essence of the Christian life. Verse 15 is a taste of eternity, a taste of heaven. The essence of the Christian life is thankful celebration of friendship with Christ. We belong to him, and he loves us. Yes, the Christian life is one of mournfulness over sin and evil. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is important. In fact, until the return of Christ, we should sometimes fast. In confession, in dependence, crying for God to extend mercy and compassion and grace to us. But along with this certain sorrow is rejoicing. Is a celebration of the friendship of our Christ, our bridegroom, our savior, our kinsman redeemer, our soul lover. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing in the grace of our Lord. He has taken us for himself as his beloved. We belong to him. And this is the great source of comfort and gladness in life and in death. He is not here with us in the flesh, but we long for that day to see him, to be with him. And we anticipate the day of his return with hope and with rejoicing and with joy. We, we mourn and celebrate now. Is not the Lord's Supper an occasion of sorrow and celebration? The Christian life is one of thankful celebration of Christ, thankful obedience to Christ, and thankful anticipation of Christ's glorious return. Number three, self-righteous religious discipline must be completely abandoned in exchange for knowing and serving Christ with gratitude. Again, I, I really struggled with verses 16 and 17, but I think I'm getting it. The Pharisees and John's disciples were stuck inside of an old way of doing things which prevented them from seeing the beauty and goodness of Christ. The Pharisees in particular had created a religious system that was not biblical. It, it was self-righteous. It was legalistic. Jesus was not coming to patch up man-made religion 
but to eradicate it altogether and call everyone to come to him in true piety and religion. We must be careful not to think here that Jesus was abolishing the law. He wasn't. He was, he was fulfilling the law. So certainly he brought changes to the ceremonial and civil law, but the moral law uh, has, has never changed. It's still in effect. Jesus was not, however, giving a facelift to their version of Judaism. He was disregarding it. He was inaugurating a new administration of the same covenant of grace. Look at verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. First, that, that idea of the patch you, you can't take a patch of new and unshrunk material and add it to an old garment. Um, it's just not going to work. That, that old garment is already shrunk. The patch will, will, pull, it, it will pull and make the tear worse. Essentially, you need a new garment. What's the old garment? It's the religion of the Pharisees. What Judaism had become at that time, it's worn out, it's, it's, it's torn, it's obsolete. The famous Lutheran scholar Richard Lenski stated, and I think Lenski is helpful here, to preserve the old by attaching a little of the new is worse than useless. Discard the old entirely and accept the new completely. Not a new patch, but a new robe. Lenski is not saying that Jesus was getting rid of the Old Testament. That's not his point. But he was bringing changes. Lenski continues, The old robe is the Judaism of that period, namely what the scribes and the Pharisees had made of it with their doctrine and their practice. All the old formalism, outward observance, and false righteousness. It was useless to try to patch this with a bit of the teaching or the practice of Jesus. The new would only tear the old more than ever. The doctrine of grace and faith and the life that springs from it cannot possibly be combined, even in small part, with the Pharisaic Judaism, either in its ancient or its modernistic forms. Discard the old rotten robe, take in its place the robe of Christ's righteousness. End of quote. The ministry of Jesus had no place in their legalistic expression of religion. True Judaism, all the law in its pure form, was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not abolished, fulfilled. Though the moral law remained, the ceremonial and civil law of national theocratic Israel was obsolete. Jesus brought a new administration of the same covenant of grace. The old was obsolete. The new was being ushered in. The Sermon on the Mount shows that Jesus corrected the common religious misunderstandings of the day. He even addressed fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. So a little part of the new cannot patch up the old. The old must go. The, the new must be entirely accepted. Neither can all the new simply be inserted inside of, of the old. Mixed, if you will. New wine can't be put into old wineskins. The old wineskins will burst under the pressure of the gas released from the new wine and everything will be ruined. The new wine must be added to new wineskins, which can expand, and that makes sense. 
The old wineskins refers to the religion of the Pharisees, their practices, habits, rules, laws. The, the new wine was the person, work, and ministry of Jesus which could not be added to Pharisaical religion that was already there. Again, Jesus was not bringing his kingdom to fuse with the system the Pharisees and scribes had created. No, it was all about his kingdom and his kingdom alone. I think how the Apostle Paul handled things like circumcision and dietary laws uh, in his epistles reveals that Jesus was indeed bringing something new. It's, it's not old and new together, it's just new. The old administration of the covenant of grace is obsolete. There is a new administration. The, the administration of the covenant of grace in the new covenant is exactly that, new. And true piety has really never come in external formalities or rituals, but rather internal communion with God and grateful obedience to him. D.A. Carson explained, these illustrations show that the new situation introduced by Jesus could not simply be patched into old Judaism or poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. New forms would have to accompany the kingdom Jesus was now inaugurating to try to domesticate him and incorporate him into the matrix of established Jewish religion would only succeed in ruining both Judaism and Jesus' teaching, end of quote. Jesus didn't come to fit into what was already there, but to fulfill the law and to lead his people into a new administration of the same covenant of grace that was established in the garden. How Christianity unfolds after the resurrection and ascension shows exactly that Judaism was fulfilled in Christianity and that Christianity is the new administration of the same covenant of grace. What Judaism was in the first century could not be patched and filled with Jesus and his ministry. It needed to be abandoned in exchange for knowing and serving Christ with gratitude. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts and in the epistles. Jews became Christians and Gentiles were grafted into the one true people of God. Now there are religious people today, devoutly religious people today who think following God is mostly about external behaviors and formalities. And they find a certain security in their own self-righteous effort. But these people fail to commune with Christ. Following Jesus in true faith and worship is celebrating Jesus with deep gratitude and gladness. It's, it's celebrating his mercy, compassion, grace, forgiveness, friendship, person, and work. It's communing with him. Now, if your friend came to your birthday party with a gift, that sounds good. But you sense that the gift was a formality. It was a formality and that they, they didn't seem like they really wanted to be at your birthday party. Well, you'd be hurt. You'd be hurt. The gift wouldn't mean much. But when you see that your friend is thrilled to be with you at your birthday party and thrilled to give you a gift that, that they thought about for a while and they put some time into and they want to express their love by giving you this gift, well, then that's completely different. You feel deeply loved and, and deeply honored. So number four, 
The Christian life is one of thankful celebration of Christ and joyful expectation of Christ's glorious return. Craig Blomberg gives us something to think about. He writes, all Christians would do well to reflect on whether their demeanor, lifestyle, and words convey to others, especially the unsaved, this joy of salvation and the lively presence of Jesus, or whether they communicate, even unwittingly, a dour, judgmental attitude that is quicker to point out the wrongs of others. End of quote. Does your demeanor, your lifestyle, your words communicate to others that you are oh so thankful and glad that Jesus Christ befriended you? If you have a gloomy, judgmental, and ungrateful disposition, you need to repent. And ask God to give you a thankful, glad, and celebratory disposition. Your disposition, dear people of God, should match what Christ is for you and what Christ has done for you. Now, saints, the world may look at you and me and wonder why we are celebrating amidst pain and suffering and the world burning to the ground. They don't get it. They ask, how can you worship a God who allows evil and suffering in the world? How does that even make sense to you people? They just don't get it. They won't understand and see in our sorrowful, yet always rejoicing the goodness and the love of Christ. So let's communicate to the world, brothers and sisters, the goodness and the kindness of our bridegroom by thankfully celebrating him thankfully obeying him and thankfully anticipating his return our bridegroom will come soon so let us mourn and grieve our sin with true repentance but let us also and simultaneously celebrate the grace and friendship of our lord and savior and bridegroom jesus christ well how do we celebrate it's a couple ideas for you we rejoice that we have received grace we praise God for choosing and loving us. We worship him at home and in corporate worship. We feast on his provision of grace together in preaching. We feast upon him together with joy in the Lord's Supper. We catechize our children so that they know the law and gospel. We ask God for his grace and his Holy Spirit. And we strive by the Spirit to obey him with gladness like we want to, because we do. Not burden, not gloom, not smugness, gladness to do what our king tells us to do. We live like God's law is the best life because it is the best life. It's not a drag to do God's law. And when pain and suffering come in our tears, as we weep, as we grieve and, uh, grieve and mourn, we delight in the presence of our bridegroom and we look ahead in hope for his glorious return. For when he arrives, brothers and sisters, our joy will be complete. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's waiting to celebrate with us. Listen to what he told his disciples on another occasion. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The disciples feasted in the bridegroom's presence. The bridegroom was taken away and they fasted. But in the great consummated kingdom, the disciples will sit at the table with their bridegroom to feast once again. And we too, brothers and sisters, will feast in his kingdom. Jesus said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Fasting helps us now. We should fast sometimes now. But only until our bridegroom comes. Soon we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our beloved bridegroom. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 8? I preached this a little while ago. He said this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who recline at table to feast and celebrate with the patriarchs in the kingdom of God are those who, like the patriarchs, receive the grace of God in Christ, respond to the promises of God with faith, celebrate the mercy and compassion of God in Christ, and obey with thankfulness and joy. The Christian life is one of thankful celebration of Christ, thankful obedience to Christ, and thankful anticipation of Christ's glorious turn. Our destiny, brothers and sisters, is the banquet table of our bridegroom where we will celebrate and enjoy his grace forever. 